there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before. Because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So, putting a slice of Daya cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. In October 2014, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea released a video of a thin, elderly man sitting on the floor of a small living room. English subtitles identify him as the father of Shin In Gun, a North Korean defector who was known to be living under the assumed name Shin Dong Hyuk. The man tells an off-camera interviewer, we've never lived in a so-called political prison camp. We lived in Pongchang village. He runs through a version of Shin's life story that includes attending school, working in a mine, and fleeing the country after being accused of a crime. His voice becomes quiet as he adds, quote, He might think that I am no longer alive. He might think he is the only one left in the family. He'll never think that I am still alive. The message was clear. Shin Dong-hyuk may have escaped from North Korea, but he wasn't free. If he spoke out against his homeland's government, they had the power to hurt him far more than he could ever hurt them. Welcome to Survival on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life-or-death situations. This is our second of two episodes on Shin Dong-hyuk, the only person to ever escape from North Korea's Chun internment camp. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. On January 2nd, 2005, Shin Dong-hyuk crawled through the high-voltage fence surrounding North Korea's internment camp 14. His escape partner, Park Young-chul 
was supposed to help him travel to China and then onward to South Korea, where they'd be granted citizenship. But Park had been electrocuted while trying to climb through the fence. Shin was on his own. He had no idea where he was going. But at the top of the mountain ridge, just outside the fence, the only direction was down. He skidded down the slope into the dense tree cover below. After only a few minutes, the trees cleared and the mountains gave way to valleys and cornfields. Shin was out in the open, an easy target if any snipers were following him. In the dim moonlight, Shin could make out a shed nestled into the sloping hillside. There were no other houses around, no one in sight. Shin grabbed an axe resting on the ground nearby and smashed the shed's lock open. Inside, he found an old military uniform. Thin, worn, and way too big for him, but much better than his prison uniform, which was drenched in snow and sticky with blood. He rolled up his pant leg. His legs, from knee to ankle, had been severely burned from the electric fence. The soles of his feet looked like he'd stepped on nails. Shin ripped some pages from an old book he found on the shelf and stuck them to his legs as a makeshift bandage. Then he pulled on the old military uniform. He probably wouldn't have guessed it, but he'd blend in perfectly in North Korea, where military service is mandatory and one-third of the population is chronically malnourished. Shin left the shed and followed an abandoned road winding down into the valley. After an hour or two of walking, he reached the outskirts of a small mining town called Bukchang. Compared to Camp 14, Bukchang was a paradise. In various recent studies by international groups, North Korea has been ranked as the country with the least economic freedom on earth, the least free press, and the highest percentage of people in slavery. But at least there were no guards standing by with automatic weapons. Men laughed together as they walked home from the factories. A woman was closing up her cart at the market. In the glowing windows of houses, parents served their children bowls of warm, steaming rice. After several hours of walking, Shin's burned legs were too painful to keep moving. He saw a pig pen behind a small, remote house up ahead. He climbed over the fence, piled up some straw, and went to sleep. Shin spent two days roughing it around Bukchang, stealing whatever he could find to eat. He broke into an empty house and managed to steal a warm brown military jacket. But he couldn't stay for too long or someone would come around looking for him. He had to get to China, wherever that was. Shin got back on the road, the wounds on his legs cracking open with every step. He came across a group of wanderers just outside of town. One of the men told Shin they were traveling traders headed north. Shin followed them to a market where a line of people were loading into the back of an old truck that served as a makeshift passenger bus. Shin clambered in too. The other passengers asked Shin where he was from, where he was going. He just stared at them, pretending he didn't speak Korean. Most of the traders agreed that when the truck stopped, they would hop a train to Chungjin, a city in the far north. 
There were supposed to be jobs there, and if all else failed, the rail lines in Chongjin led directly across the border into China. By the time they made it to their destination that night in early January of 2006, it was pitch dark. Shin followed the others to a rail station where freight trains were loading up. Shin didn't have any money or identification, but in the darkness, he could easily slip past the guards lining the rail yard. He darted through the rows of rusted trains, looked both ways, and ducked into a boxcar headed for Changjin. The traveling merchant huddled next to Shin told him not to get too antsy. Chongjin was 174 miles away. At the speed North Korea's trains move, they'd make it there in two days, if they were lucky. Three days later, they were only halfway there. Shin didn't have any food with him. His legs were still bleeding, but at least he had his stolen coat. The young man next to him didn't even have a jacket. He told Shin he was on his way home to Kilju, a small city along the way to Changjin. Shin's I-don't-speak-Korean gambit had failed by this point in their journey. He was still struggling to understand behavioral norms, but he guessed that if he didn't want to look suspicious, he'd better continue the conversation, revealing as little about himself as possible. By evening, the two young men were becoming fast friends. The other man said they were still days away from the train's final destination in Changjin, but they should reach his hometown of Kilju by nightfall. He offered to let Shin stay with his family for a few days, get some rest, something to eat. Shin agreed without hesitation. It was just beginning to snow as Shin stepped off the train. He followed his new friend through the winding streets towards his family's apartment. Along the way, they passed a cart selling street food, soup, ramen, dumplings, everything Shin had dreamed of when he was starving in Camp 14. Shin still had a few spare stolen coins in his pocket. He was planning to save them for the last leg of his journey, but his hunger took over. He spent his last few cents on two cups of steaming hot noodles for himself and his fellow traveler. Between mouthfuls, Shin's new friend told him that his family's apartment was just around the corner. He was ashamed for his parents to see him in his dirty, torn clothes. He asked Shin if he could borrow his coat for a few minutes, just so he could greet his parents. Then he'd come back and bring Shin up to the apartment. Shin was still trying to figure out social conventions, and he didn't want to be the cause of anyone's embarrassment. He took off his coat, handed it over, and watched his friend disappear around the corner. He waited in the snow for a few minutes. Then minutes turned to hours. The man at the food cart packed up and went home for the night. Shin eventually realized his friend wasn't coming back. With no money, no coat, and nowhere to go, he wrapped himself up in a plastic tarp he found on the street corner, sat down in the snow, and waited for the sun to rise. The next morning, Shin meandered back to the train station. He considered hopping another train north, but he needed to scrounge up some bribe money first. 
During his failed escape attempt four years earlier, Shin had learned that the North Korean soldiers at the border usually let anyone through if they were paid off with cigarettes or snacks. But if you showed up at the border without identification and without any gifts, it wouldn't go over well. Shin met a group of teenage beggars at the train station. They told him they were about to venture out into the countryside to raid the gardens of unsuspecting farmers. Shin decided to follow them. Most of the vegetables Shin dug up immediately found their way into his mouth. He bundled up the rest and sold them at the market. He continued this scheme for three weeks until he'd saved up 6,000 won, the equivalent of about $6. Hardly a fortune by most standards, but the average income in North Korea is estimated to be as little as $1,000 a year. With that massive $6 windfall, Shin bought some food and a few packs of cigarettes to use as bribes, headed for the train station, and hopped aboard a boxcar headed north. Crossing into China was perhaps the only part of the journey Shin was prepared for. He'd successfully made it across the border during his escape attempt in late 2000, though he was captured by Chinese police a few months later. He knew that the best place to cross is the Tuman River, which stretches across about a third of the border. It's only about 200 feet wide at its narrowest point, and the water freezes over in the winter, so walking across is easy. The hardest part would be contending with the soldiers who lined the border. If Shin ran into one soldier who was too uptight to bribe, he'd be arrested immediately. Shin's train pulled into the border town of Musan on an early morning in late January. As the train slowed, he opened the door of the boxcar and jumped out into the snow. One of the other passengers had warned him that the city would be swarming with soldiers. So instead of riding into the station, he walked around the outskirts of town until he reached the river. The part of the river he first came to was too deep and wide to cross. He'd have to keep walking until he found a better spot. That meant passing the border checkpoint he saw just around the bend. Shin walked right up to the checkpoint as if he had nothing to hide. As he got close, the guard asked to see his papers. Shin said he was a soldier coming home from duty and he didn't have his identification with him. To his credit, most of the stolen clothes he was wearing were, in fact, from old military uniforms. Before the guard could argue, Shin dug through his backpack and held out a pack of cigarettes. The guard just kept staring. Shin reached back into his bag and handed him another pack of cigarettes. The guard took them and motioned for Shin to keep walking. Shin wandered for another few hours, but the river was still too deep to safely cross. Before he knew it, he came across a second guard, then a third. After 18 miles, it was starting to get dark, and Shin's supply of bribes was dwindling. By dusk, Shin came across a spot that was completely frozen and only about 100 yards wide. Just up ahead, he saw a bridge and one more guard stationed in front of it. This soldier couldn't have been older than 16. He was even smaller and scrawnier than Shin. 
as soon as he noticed Shin approaching, the soldier called out, I'm dying of hunger here. Don't you have anything to eat? Shin handed over his last remaining bribes, a bag of candy, a sausage, and a pack of cigarettes. He had to cross now, or the next soldier he came across would be the last. And the guard looked cooperative, or at least he looked hungry. Thinking on his feet, Shin asked, Would it be possible for me to visit my uncle who lives in the village across the river? When I return, I'll treat you. The soldier replied, sure, go ahead, but I'm only on duty until seven tonight, so come back before then, all right? Shin agreed, and the young man pointed him towards a spot a bit down the river where it was frozen enough to cross. It almost seemed too easy. Shin took one slow, cautious step onto the ice. He kept walking one foot in front of the other, careful not to slip. He made it about halfway across and then his foot broke through the ice. A shock of freezing water soaked through his shoe. He jumped back and fell onto the solid ice. Shin crawled the rest of the way across on his elbows and knees, pulling himself along inch by inch. After minutes that felt like hours, he finally reached the bank. He pulled himself up and turned around to take one last look at the country he was leaving behind. There was nothing to miss about North Korea, except possibly his father, the only family member he had left. Shin wondered if his father would be killed because of him. He wasn't even sure if he was still alive in the first place. It had been years since they had been allowed to see each other. And now, Shin would never see a familiar face again. Shin noticed the young guard watching him from his post across the river. He motioned for Shin to hurry up and leave. Shin turned and ran, disappearing into the forests of China. We'll continue Shin's journey to South Korea right after this. Now, back to the story. Nearly a month after he fled from Camp 14, Shin Dong-hyuk finally crossed the border into China in late January 2005. As the sun began to set over the snow-covered fields, he slowly realized he had no plan for what came next. If the police found him in China, he'd immediately be sent back to North Korea. And if he didn't get out of the cold soon, he'd freeze to death. Shin headed towards the small cluster of houses he saw on the horizon. There were two men with flashlights meandering down the road ahead of him, gazing up at the stars. They were wearing matching vests with Chinese letters across the back, but Shin didn't understand a word of Chinese. If he did, he would have known that the vests said China Immigration Inspection. The universe seemed to be on Shin's side that day. The Border Patrol agents were too busy counting stars to notice him. He continued on into the village and surveyed the row of houses. Being so close to the border, there was a good chance a few of the houses belonged to Korean Chinese immigrants who might give him shelter. All he could do was guess what was behind each door. 
a sympathetic face or a dutiful citizen who would immediately report him to the police. Shin blindly chose a house and walked up to the door. The man who answered by chance was Korean Chinese. Shin begged the man to let him come in for a while. But the man told Shin to go away. The police had come by his house that same morning to remind him that helping North Koreans was a punishable offense. Shin tried the next house. Again, the door was opened by a Korean Chinese man. Again, he told Shin to get lost. It took two days for Shin to find a benefactor. By dusk, he came across a small farm somewhere in the forest. As he passed by the house, five dogs sprung to attention. A pudgy, middle-aged man opened the door and hushed the dogs. He looked at Shin and asked him in broken Korean, Are you from North Korea? Shin nodded. The farmer told him to come inside. The farmer told a young woman in the kitchen to put on a pot of rice. He explained to Shin that he'd hired two North Korean farmhands a while back, and they'd been good workers. He offered to give Shin room and board and a stipend of about 60 cents a day if he'd help tend the pigs. Shin had barely any concept of money, but even he knew he was being terribly underpaid. Still, he didn't have any better options. He agreed. For the next month, Shin's life was comfortable compared to his time on the streets of North Korea. The farmer gave him three meals a day, antibiotics for the burns on his legs, and his own private room, where he slept in a pile of blankets on the floor. Whenever the police came around, Shin pretended to be mute to disguise the fact that he couldn't speak Chinese. The farmer would rave to the officers about what a wonderful worker his mute farmhand was until they eventually left in peace. After about a month, Shin moved to a different job at a ranch up in the mountains. There, he finally had access to an invention he'd only ever heard stories about, a radio. Unsurprisingly, there were no radios allowed in Camp 14. As far as the rest of North Korea, all radios sold in the country are programmed to only receive state-run stations, so getting news from the outside world is nearly impossible. Now that he had a fully functional Chinese radio, Shin had access to a dozen Korean language stations, all of which focused their broadcasts on the human rights violations in North Korea. Some of these were run by North Korean defectors who'd escaped to South Korea or the U.S. Japan and the United States are asking North Korea not to test fire missile, and they're also urging Pyongyang to return to six-way talks. Most of the broadcasts about world events were difficult for Shin to understand, but he listened closely to the reports about which routes defectors were taking to get from China to South Korea. It was a rare cross-border defection involving a North Korean official. And the South Korea's announcement came three days after the Seoul government said that a group of 13 North Korean people working at the same restaurant in a third foreign country defected to South Korea. He learned that a lot of North Koreans had settled in southwestern China. There were Korean churches around these areas that often helped the escapees travel to the south. 
By December 2005, almost a year after he left Camp 14, Shin was ready to strike out once again. The rancher he worked for drove him to the bus station where he bought a ticket to Chengdu, a city 2,000 miles away in southwestern China. Working off the advice he'd heard on the radio, Shin tracked down a small Korean church and asked to speak to the pastor. He explained that he'd escaped from North Korea and he needed help. But even 2,000 miles away from the border, legal Chinese residents were wary of helping North Korean defectors. The pastor gave Shin the equivalent of $15 and told him to leave. Shin tried his luck at another church and then another. He worked through all eight churches on his list, and all of them turned him away. He took another bus from Chengdu to Beijing, then to Tianjin, then Hangzhou. At every Korean church or restaurant he visited, he was given a little bit of money or food and told to go away. In late February 2006, a full year after he crossed the river into China, Shin got off a bus in Shanghai. As was his custom, he picked up a Korean language magazine at the bus station and flipped through to find a directory of local Korean restaurants. He tracked down the first restaurant and asked the waitress if he could speak to the owner. He told her he was from North Korea, he just got into town, and he was looking for work. Like every restaurant before this one, the waitress told him they weren't hiring. But she pointed to a man eating lunch across the room and said, that man over there says he's from Korea, so you should ask him. Shin navigated over to the man's table and said, excuse me, I'm from North Korea looking for a job. The man looked up and studied his face for a moment. He put his chopsticks down and pulled a small notepad from his pocket. He asked, are you really from North Korea? The man was a journalist from a South Korean news outlet. He was the first journalist Shin had ever met, and Shin wasn't sure whether to trust him. Shin repeated what he'd just said. He was from North Korea, he was hungry, and he was looking for work. The journalist paused. He lowered his notepad and asked Shin if he wanted to go to South Korea. Shin said he couldn't because he didn't have any money. The journalist got up and told Shin to come with him. They left the restaurant, flagged down a cab, and got in. They rode in silence for a few minutes. Shin was too nervous to ask where they were going. After a while, the journalist told him that they were going to the South Korean consulate. If anyone tried to grab him when they got out of the taxi, he should run. That did nothing to quell Shin's panic. He looked out the window and saw a towering building flying a South Korean flag, surrounded by police cars and uniformed officers. When the taxi stopped, Shin opened the door and slowly stepped out. The journalist put an arm around his shoulders and told him to smile. They walked up to the gate. The journalist told a police officer he had business inside. The officer looked at him, then at Shin. Shin smiled as he was told. The officer nodded and opened the gate. 
Within the boundaries of the consulate, Korean citizens, both North and South, have immunity from Chinese laws. The moment Shin stepped through the gate, he was officially safe. He could never be taken back to North Korea against his will. Shin, predictably, didn't understand the concept of diplomatic immunity, no matter how many times the consulate staff tried to explain it to him. He was silent and tense as he was ushered through a series of waiting rooms and offices. It wasn't until much later, in the warmth and comfort of his holding dormitory, that he fully understood what had happened. Shin spent six months staying in the consulate while his paperwork was processed. Then, in August 2006, a year and eight months after escaping from Camp 14, he boarded a flight to South Korea. As soon as Shin touched down in Seoul, he was taken into questioning by the Korean National Intelligence Service and U.S. Army Intelligence. For two weeks, he told the agents everything he knew about life in North Korea. This kind of interrogation is customary. Since the so-called hermit kingdom is so secretive, defectors are the single best source of information about what's happening in North Korea. U.S. Sergeant Matthew E. McMahon noted how scared and confused Shin seemed during questioning. He could barely understand what was happening or why he was being interrogated. He told his life story to the incredulous agents with a dazed, stoic expression, remaining as truthful as possible, with a few exceptions. Shin left out a few key details, including his previous two failed escape attempts and his role in his mother and brother's execution. He also glossed over the fact that although he was born in Camp 14 and ultimately escaped from it, he spent a large chunk of his life in the neighboring Camp 18. This sort of memory dysfunction is extremely common in survivors of traumatic experiences. Dr. Stephen M. Vina, who specializes in trauma related to political violence, explained, Shin appears to have been exposed to prolonged and repeated torture. We can expect that this would have a major impact on his memory, his willingness to trust, and the way he gives his testimony. Despite the omissions, the investigators agreed that Shin's account lined up with what they knew about North Korea's labor camps. His story was astounding, but as far as they were capable of fact-checking, it was credible. He was released from interrogation and ushered on to the next stage in the process, a three-month crash course in modern living at Hanawan Resettlement Center. We'll explore Shin's adjustment to South Korean society right after this. Now back to the story. Once Shin Dong-hyuk was released from his intelligence debriefing in late August 2006, he was sent to a facility called Hanawon, which translates to House of Unity. Forty miles south of Seoul, the complex serves as a sort of halfway house for North Korean defectors, with three months of mandatory education and psychological evaluation for every new arrival. After completing the program, they'll be given an $800 a month resettlement stipend and released into regular society. 
The aim of the resettlement program is to teach the absolute basics needed to survive in the modern world. How to pay bills, use a computer, how democracy works, etc. For the first month, Shin adjusted extremely well. He changed his birth name, In Gun, to Dong Hyuk, as a way to reinvent himself and take control of his own identity. After his years spent roaming around China, Shin felt perfectly at ease when the group took field trips into Seoul, a hyper-modern city of 20 million people. He also had no problem when the teacher explained to his class that North Korea had started the Korean War by attacking the South, not the other way around. Most of Shin's classmates furiously rejected the lesson, since North Korea's entire propaganda system is built on the false story that South Korea had started the war. Journalist Blaine Hardin compared it to how Americans might respond if they were told World War II began with the U.S. attacking Japan at Tokyo Harbor. But since Shin had never learned anything about world history in the first place, he accepted the official version of events without hesitation. But Shin's adjustment wasn't totally free from difficulty. About a month after he arrived at Hanawan, Shin started having nightmares. He would see his mother being killed, or Park's electrocuted body hanging on the fence. He even had dreams of his father being tortured in retaliation for his escape. Survivor's guilt, or the feeling that one has done something wrong by surviving an event that others did not, is extremely common among North Korean defectors. Shin's guilt would have been compounded by the fact that he didn't just outlive his mother and brother, he was actively responsible for their deaths. His actions had made sense in the kill-or-be-killed environment of the labor camps, but now that he was free, he couldn't reconcile his comfortable new life with the horrifying things he'd had to do to survive. The longer Shin spent at Hanawan, the worse the nightmares became. He stopped attending classes, then stopped eating and sleeping. He was eventually taken to a psychiatric hospital where he was treated for post-traumatic stress disorder. As part of his treatment, Shin was encouraged to keep a diary to record his thoughts and emotions. In 2012, researchers at the University of Amsterdam compared studies on PTSD treatment and found that writing-based therapy can substantially reduce the symptoms of post-traumatic stress and depression. Shin's nightmares slowly subsided, and after about two and a half months, he was released into a government-paid apartment in Hwasang, a small city just south of Seoul. It was around December 2006, almost two full years since Shin escaped from Camp 14. At 24 years old, he was finally completely free and completely alone. For the first month, he rarely left his one-room apartment. Once he did, he found it difficult to find a job or make friends. Despite the positive rhetoric about Korean unity, most South Koreans tend to look down on their northern counterparts as uneducated and uncultured. Finding employment is extremely difficult as well, both because of the general stigma against North Koreans 
and because most defectors lack the basic requirements for modern jobs, like computer skills or English proficiency. Shin's lifeline came when his psychiatrist connected him with a counselor at the Database Center for North Korean Human Rights, an organization that collects and publishes information about North Korea's human rights abuses. The counselor encouraged Shin to turn his diary into a memoir to raise awareness about the North's political prison camps. So, over the course of 2006, Shin wrote out a comprehensive version of his life story, the same story he told to the investigators when he first arrived in Seoul, with the same omissions and disjointed timeline. Shin started spending more and more time at the database center office, making friends with the staff members. Word eventually spread throughout the activist community that Shin had been born and raised in a prison camp and that he was the first person known to have escaped from Camp 14. He became a subject of fascination for human rights leaders and journalists in South Korea and abroad. But when his Korean language memoir was published in 2007, it was met with indifference. Only 500 copies sold. Shin later remarked, out of the total population of South Korea, only 0.001% has any real interest in North Korea. Their ways of living do not allow them to think about things beyond their borders. There is nothing in it for them. But Shin's harrowing story did catch the attention of a nonprofit called Liberty in North Korea, or LINK. With the hope of making him the face of North Korea, they sent Shin to Southern California in the spring of 2009. The first few months of his speaking tour were a disaster. Shin had difficulty talking about his experiences in private, never mind in front of an audience. His presentations were so vague and disjointed that even his English interpreter couldn't make sense of them. Shin's real strength was writing. Soon after he moved to California, he began working with Washington Post journalist Blaine Hardin on an English-language biography titled Escape from Camp 14. Unlike Shin's Korean autobiography, when Escape from Camp 14 was published in 2012, it became an international bestseller. Almost overnight, Shin became one of the most prominent North Korean defectors in the world. By the time the book was published, Shin, then 30 years old, had become comfortable enough to tell his story in person. And he did, giving televised interviews on 60 Minutes, C-SPAN, and more. In August 2013, he testified before the United Nations, where a member of the commission described him as the world's single strongest voice on North Korea's prison camps. Unfortunately, after his UN testimony, the North Korean government finally identified Shin Dong-hyuk as the escaped prisoner Shin In-gun. In October 2014, they sent back their response in the form of a video interview with Shin's only living relative, his father. 
In the video, which was titled Lie and Truth, Shin's father denied that the family had ever lived in a prison camp. He claimed that Shin's various scars were the result of mining accidents, not torture. He also insisted that Shin's mother and brother were executed for committing a murder. The problem with the last allegation was that, to an extent, it was true. When Shin reported the escape plan in 1996, he was coerced into signing a falsified testimony implicating his mother and brother in a murder he knew they didn't commit. Of course, Shin had kept this a secret ever since he first spoke to the intelligence officials in South Korea. After the video was released, Shin immediately criticized the North Korean government for holding his father hostage and trying to derail his work with the UN. But it had already caught the eye of another prominent North Korean defector, Kim Hai-suk, who had spent nearly three decades in Camp 18. Kim recognized Shin's father, and she remembered attending the execution of Shin's mother and brother in Camp 18, not, as Shin had claimed, in Camp 14. It seems like an inconsequential detail, but since North Korea's prison camps are shrouded in so much secrecy, people began to wonder what else Shin had lied about. Some speculated he had made up the entire prison camp story as a way to earn publicity and make money. The worst backlash came from other prison camp survivors, who feared the discrepancies in Shin's story would cause all North Korean defectors to be labeled as liars. For his part, Shin feared the same thing. He was racked with guilt for months before he finally came forward in January 2015 and set the record straight. He adjusted the timeline of some of the events in his life story, clarified that he spent much of his life inside the neighboring Camp 18, and confessed his role in securing his mother and brother's execution. The announcement did garner some backlash from international news outlets, but human rights experts were quick to point out that the inaccuracies in Shin's story were unsurprising and ultimately inconsequential. Greg Scarlatiu, executive director of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, told the Washington Post, Camp 14, Camp 18, Auschwitz, Dachau, Birkenau, what difference does it make? The critical points of the book remain true. Shin also implored the North Korean government to allow him to see his father. Unsurprisingly, this request still has not been granted. It's unknown whether Shin's father, who would be 74 years old, is currently still alive. After the controversy in 2015, Shin stepped out of the spotlight to focus on his personal life. Later that year, he got married to a Korean-American woman named Leanne. In June 2017, the couple had a son, Lucas Johan Shin. A few days after the baby's birth, 34-year-old Shin posted on Facebook, quote, I could have never imagined in my wildest dreams that I'd be where I am in life right now. As far as I'm concerned, I've won the good fight and have defeated the dictator in this battle. After decades of struggle and suffering, Shin Dong-hyuk 
finally attained freedom. But hundreds of thousands of North Koreans will never be so lucky. Camp 14 is still open today, readily visible in satellite photos on Google Earth. According to Amnesty International, an estimated 120,000 people are currently imprisoned in North Korea, and around 40% of those prisoners will die prematurely from starvation, overwork, or execution. In 2017, the International Bar Association found evidence to charge Kim Jong-un with 10 of the 11 crimes against humanity recognized by the International Criminal Court. One of the judges on the panel, who was a survivor of Auschwitz concentration camp, described the conditions in North Korea as, quote, as terrible or even worse than those I saw and experienced in my youth. And yet, the prison camps remain open. As of February 2019, all efforts to bring charges against North Korea's leaders have failed due to pushback from China and Russia. While peace negotiations continue, survivors like Shin Dong-hyuk stand as a voice for the 25.5 million North Koreans being held as collateral in the international chess game. Thanks to their activism, there's hope that the rest of their countrymen might one day find freedom as well. Thanks for listening to Survival. Shin's story was covered at length in Blaine Hardin's book, Escape from Camp 14, One Man's Remarkable Odyssey from North Korea to Freedom in the West. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson.